Welcome to Unspoken Unsung, the podcast that introduces people we may pass on the street every day, never knowing how inspiring their life experiences and accomplishments are, or how much we could learn from them if we only knew their untold stories. We've all heard something being called the opportunity of a lifetime. Usually the expression is hyperbolic, but when the opportunity arises to become a producer for the most monumental concert in music history, that's a genuine opportunity of a lifetime. The Live Aid Global Concert on July 13, 1985 is unparalleled in history. It marked the first live worldwide television broadcast of an event which was viewed by an audience of over 1.5 billion people. Live Aid brought together two venues, one in London, the other in Philadelphia, for simultaneous performances by over 75 of the top acts in rock music. Both venues sold out, 72,000 filled Wembley Stadium, and 103,000 packed JFK Stadium in Philadelphia. Live Aid raised nearly $175 million, which in 2021 dollars would be in excess of $425 million. Live Aid was organized and staged in only eight months. It was nothing short of a miracle. Fred Spaniard got the call to join the elite team of producers responsible for the concert in Philadelphia with only five weeks to organize and stage the event. This is his story, and when you've heard it, you may just believe in miracles. Fred Spaniard, welcome to Unspoken Unsung. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with you today, Dan. Aloha from Maui. Yeah, actually, I was thinking perhaps I should have led with Aloha since you're at your home there in Maui. You know, you're living about 7,500 miles from your birthplace, which has a very poignant significance in your family history. Would you share what that significance is? Oh, I'd be happy to, yeah. That's interesting. Nobody's ever pointed out the distance. <laughs> That's great. I love it. Um, I was born in Heidelberg, Germany, which is, uh, and I was born in an American army hospital because my father was stationed there in 1955. However, the, uh, the backstory and the irony is, is that less than 10 years before he was in Germany, uh, and he was in a concentration camp about 200 meters from the hospital that I was born in Heidelberg. He um, was at Bergen-Belsen, and uh, he had been incarcerated uh, with his family, who had, they'd shipped him from Holland, where they had arrested him and my two grandparents. And uh, Bergen-Belsen had a camp within a camp. It was a slave labor camp. Within that camp, they had uh, a camp for special cases. Uh, and my father fit into that category because he had an American citizenship. He was born in, in 1929 in New York City uh, to my two Dutch grandparents who were immigrants. But when he was two, uh, the, uh, my grandfather had to move back to Amsterdam to take over his father's family business, whose his father's health was ailing. 
and that's how they wound up back in Holland in Amsterdam. Um, and for about uh, eight or ten years, they had a very nice middle class life. And then the Nazis invaded Holland, and uh, uh, they uh, eventually started arresting Jew Jewish people. Um, and they uh, gave my father. They gave everybody. All the Jews had to wear these big yellow Jewish stars um, on their on their lapel on their clothing so that they could be recognized in public because they weren't allowed to do any public transportation or go to parks or even shop. Wow. My father, because he was an American citizen, even though he was just a kid, he was only like 10, 11 years old, he was singled out as a special case. So he actually was allowed to go to the store and, and he would buy groceries and things for the neighbors before things got very bad. And they eventually rest, arrested my grandparents and my father and uh, they eventually wound up in Bergen-Belsen in a special case camp. And that special case camp is also the place where my father met Anne Frank. Because Anne Frank was alive for a very brief period of time when she was discovered and shipped off to Bergen-Belsen. And she, too, was a special case. So she was put into that same uh, area of the camp, which was a special area because the families could live together. They, the, um, they didn't separate people, and, uh, but they still starved them to death. Needless to say, uh, four months before the end of the war, the Germans decided they didn't want an American citizen in their ranks, in their concentration camp. They knew they were going to end, their, they were going to lose the war, and they started making deals for trading German officers for my grandparents and my father, and they ended up making a trade for five German officers for each of them. So the 15 German officers were exchanged, and um, that's how they got out of the camps uh, about four months before the end of the war. Unfortunately, my grandfather, who was uh, all still in his 30s, I believe, uh, was just worked so hard that he... He barely made it to uh, 10 minutes of freedom. As soon as the train arrived in the, at the border town of Lake Constance in, in Switzerland, uh, they switched to the Red Cross train, and my grandfather collapsed. And uh, he was taken away and uh, taken to a hospital. Uh, but the train had to keep going with my father and my grandmother. And uh, my grandfather passed away a couple days later. Oh, but he made it to freedom and safety, even though it was just for a few minutes. And he, he was able to finally have some peace of mind, I think, knowing that his family got out. Um, that is poignant. Very, very tragic. So at any rate, the irony is, is that my father came back to this country, um, lived as a normal young, young man. He came back at age 16 and grew up. And because he was an American citizen, when he was draftable, the uh, U.S. Army drafted him into the United States Army because they didn't ask on the, on the questionnaire, have you been in the Holocaust? They asked, do you speak any foreign languages? And he, he listed, he spoke Dutch, a little French, and he spoke German because he had learned it in the camps. So sure enough, they said, oh, you speak German. Great, we're going to station you in Germany. And so less than 10 years after getting out of a concentration camp, my father was walking the streets of Germany as a U.S. soldier with an automatic weapon in his hands. Wow. 
And uh, I was born there in that hospital in Heidelberg. So and how did your parents meet? My parents met uh, in New York City because my mother lived in New York City uh, and grew up in New York City. She was Jewish as well, but didn't have any um, family members go to the affected by the war. Um, my father came back to this country and he lived like a normal guy. He went to high school and then, um, although at first it was very tragic, they put him into a, out of getting, after getting out of a concentration camp, he had to go to school because he was only 16. They put him into a military academy after getting out of a concentration camp. So he'd gone from being uh, ordered around for the last two and a half years of his life by mean sadistic German soldiers in uniforms to mean sadistic Americans in uniforms at the uh, military academy. And, uh, you know, in those days in the 40s, they didn't know of therapy and having to PTSD, nothing like that. But yet my father somehow has something in his soul motivated him to type out whatever he could uh, remember from his days in the camps and growing up in Holland. And uh, it, while it was still fresh in his mind, that manuscript existed for 30 years. And uh, finally, in the, in the 80s, when my father remarried, uh, his new wife helped him find that manuscript, and they edited it and released it. And then he sp spent the last 20 years of his life going around to schools and things and speaking to the kids right after they'd read and the diary of Anne Frank wow. as all kids do they would read my father's book which is called don't fence me in an american teenager in the holocaust and it it talks it takes up where anne frank leaves off you know he talks about his experiences as a teenager in the camps amazing so it's a pretty fascinating story so he met my mother in new york city and they uh, married, and then when he got drafted, they were sent to Germany uh, as a married couple. He talks about those years as the best years of his life. You know, he had fun. He, uh, you know, partied with, with the other married couples in their own apartment building. He had a little motor scooter. They would drive all, all around Europe, you know, and um, those were good days, good, good memories for him. Yeah. And so as growing up, Dan... Although I knew my father had been in the Holocaust, I never knew any of the details because nobody ever talked about it in those yeah, days. Yeah, I can imagine. And then in the mid-70s, that movie with Meryl Streep uh, came out on TV, a, a big three-day special movie called uh, Holocaust, actually. Mm. And that kind of started to break the ice a little bit. By the time Schindler's List was released, then... You know, everybody was talking about is that as much as they could remember. And, uh, in fact, Steven Spielberg's team interviewed my father because uh, they, the, they he, Spielberg set up the Shoha Foundation, uh, and that was all about capturing as many of the stories from the survivors as they could while they were still alive. Most of them are dead now. Yeah. So when you when you came back from Europe, you did you move to the West Coast at that point? Well, I was just a baby. I just didn't. I was in Germany for the first three months of my life. Yeah, and then came back to New York City, where my parents had roots, and my 
we lived with my grandmother on my mother's side for a while, and then we lived in Queens until I was four and a half. And then we moved to California, and uh, that's where I grew up, in California. Well, I've seen pictures of you where it looks like you were a bit of a TV personality back in California. Yeah, I guess I started early. Uh, <laughs> we moved out to California, and uh, I always had a... I was in first grade, and my my school uh, was was picked to um, be part of the Art Link Letters house party. It was oh, called perfect, which was kids say the darndest things. And he had a a daily talk show every day, and uh, he would have a celebrity guest on, and then he would interview four kids. Uh, that was the start of the kids say the darndest things. And when I was six years old. I was selected, uh, you know, I, I, I guess one of the talents I always had was I could communicate fairly well. And uh, even at first grade, my, my teachers picked me to be one of the four kids. Do you remember what darndest thing you said? I actually do, <laughs> uh, because for, remember, this is something you don't really forget. And then... The second thing is, is that it, they gave me a record, a little 45 record of it that I still have, you know. And um, so I've heard it over the years a couple of times. Uh, but he said, um, well, hello there, young fella. What's your name? And I said, Freddie, Freddie Spaniard. Well, Freddie. Oh, I should tell you, there's a backstory. I'm so sorry, Dan. I, my, at the time, my parents lived in Fresno, California. My father worked for Max Factor, and he was transferred to Fresno. And Fresno was like the armpit of California, yes. no offense, you know? It's like raisin country, right? Well, in those days, if anybody's familiar with L.A. and Southern California, there was no Interstate 5 running up and down California in the, in the San Fran, the San Fran, through the San Fernando Valley, to San Joaquin Valley through Bakersfield, Fresno, there was only Highway 99. And so uh, the only way people could get to, uh, to up to Bakersfield and, and Las Vegas and San Francisco was to go up Highway 99, and they had to go through Fresno. So I was, my school was from Fresno, and I'm six years old, and Art Linkletter asked me, uh, well, young fellow, what do you think Fresno's famous for? <laughs> and I said, well, you have to go through Fresno to get to Las Vegas. And uh, it got quite a laugh, actually. My first, first laugh, my first show business laugh. And um, that was, uh, that was the, uh, the, the, uh, the big question and the big answer for me. So it was quite fun uh, and quite a memory. Uh, of course, that studio still exists. It's a television city in Hollywood. It's it's the same studio that where Bill Maher, I believe, films his show every week. Uh-huh. And, uh, yeah, it's pretty nostalgic. So you grew up all, all the way through grade school and high school in Fresno, or did you... No, so then we moved down. When I was about 11, we moved down to Southern California. And then we moved uh, to Hollywood. When we moved to Hollywood, and I was about 11, my father, who, I mean, he, he was like a, uh, a guy who loved show business. 
When he grew up in New York, he got his first jobs, at, you know, working in the Catskills. And the mm -hmm. Catskills were like where all the comedians would go every, every year. And that was a the Catskills circuit. You know, the famous comedians like Shecky Green and Buddy Hackett and, and, and uh, Myron Cohn and all those guys in those days. So my dad, he liked to think of himself as a comedian. He had a big joke list with him that he carried, and he'd get up at parties and events and loved to be the comedian. So I guess I got the messages early on that I could get love from my dad if I was uh, kind of a show-busy kind of a guy, you know? And <laughs> I, I can remember that my parents loved to watch Johnny Carson, and so that was the kind of TV I grew up on, you know? And, and I, I would pretend... Instead of playing cars and trucks, I would play Johnny Carson. You know, I'd pretend, hey, ladies and gentlemen, welcome, you know, to the Mike, D I, I was called Mike Nelson, you know. <laughs> the reason I was called Mike Nelson because I love Sea Hunt, and, and, and Lloyd Bridges' name was Sea Hunt, right? And I'd stand behind my curtain, and I'd go, you know, with a little, I'd have a little gray pipe, and I'd say, you know, and here's Mike, and I'd come out, and I'd pretend I was a talk show host. Oh, that's funny. So, that's how I got to get the love from my dad. And when I was six years old and, and, in, and in first grade or second grade, actually, at my elementary school, they had a talent show. My dad thought it'd be a good idea for me to try out to be the comedian at age six, right? I thought this was nuts, right? But he said, no, I'll help you. And he gave me some jokes to tell, some of which I can still remember to this day, that were kid jokes for kids, right? And so that's what I did at the talent show. I, I told jokes. I was the comedian at age six years old. It was funny. <laughs> told jokes like, you know, like, hey, you know what this is? No. Well, I don't know either, but here comes another one. Oh, yeah. So did you kill or did you bomb? <laughs> I killed it. I killed it. It was fun. <laughs> I never thought I would, but my dad had faith in me, right? So then... Um, he, I guess, at some point decided it might be fun to get me in, uh, get me into, into the business. We were living in Hollywood, and um, so somehow he got me an agent, and we got pictures taken. And the next thing you know, I'm going out on calls and auditions, and and I got, I started to get some some little uh, gigs as a child actor, and this was in the late mid '60s, you know, '66, '65, '66, '67. Um, one of the shows that everybody would recognize that I was in, I would play uh, Opie's friend in, in Andy Griffith a couple of times. Now, I was just like the one of the background school kids. You know, I wasn't one of the uh, like the kids that had a speaking part, but it was it was like a gas to to be doing that and be getting out of school and be in show business and and that particular uh, job was really fun because Ron Howard, who played Opie, was really a cool kid. He was back, he was, you know, he's still everybody's nicest person in show business. Nobody has a bad thing to say. Even back then, all the kids were invited to play basketball with him, things like that. You know, he's really sweet. So that that's how I got into the business. And then, uh, and then of course, one of the parts I ended up getting, because when you take your, your pictures as an actor, you have a resume on the back of your glossy pictures, and it, it gives you your stats, like how tall you are and what you weigh what, and what you've done, all your, 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 your credits. 
and then what 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 my skills were. So the list had things like baseball, football, basketball, ice skating, and then somehow on there it had horseback riding. And so one day I get this call to go out and um, the the job required horseback riding. And so I I go out to the studio, and I in in the interview. They tell me that it's for a, a TV show with Chuck Connors, and that it's hasn't come on the air yet. This was not with. This is after the Rifleman. He, Chuck Connors had a TV show that he was uh, doing, just starting to film, and it only lasted for thirteen weeks, which is why nobody remembers it. Called Cowboy in Africa, and uh, it was about a Texas cowboy in supposed to be in Africa, running an Africa ranch with. And in those days, there weren't a lot of black actors. We called them Negroes in those days, not Negro actors, and let alone Negro child actors. So this particular scene of this episode calls for this child that's one of the African kids in the show playing co-starring, co-starring with Chuck Connors. The episode called for this kid to, to get caught on this wild runaway African horse and 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 have to be saved after this long run through the desert, the African desert, uh, to be pulled off the horse right at the uh, end, just before imminent death, going off a cliff. Chuck Connors pulls him off the horse. So they didn't tell me any of this. They just asked me in the interview, you horseback ride, so can you jump a horse? And I said, jump a horse? I, how big is the jump? I asked in my naivete, 12-year-old innocence, right? And they said, it's about a foot or a foot and a half. So in my mind, I went, oh, you know, a foot. That's like the size of a chair, you know, somebody sitting on my chair, you know? Like, and I'm thinking, in a half a second, I go, I can get on a Hollywood-trained horse and go giddy up, and, I can make, and that horse is going to get over that. I could, and I go, oh, yeah, I could do that, no problem. Well, I lied because I, my extent of horseback riding was pony rides at the Burbank stables. You know, I was not a stunt rider, which is what this was all about. I was to be the, the stunt double for the kid star in the show. And I was going to do the dangerous part of galloping through the desert on this wild runaway horse. And Chuck Connors is going to pull me off the horse. And so they said to me in the interview, well, obviously we're looking for a, a little Negro boy, they called him in those days, uh, who can do this. But we're not having any luck. So we might just end up calling you. So they did. They ended up calling me. Well, they also lied to me because the first day I got out there on the set and sure enough, the jump that they said was a foot and a half was more like five or six feet as this huge log that I had to jump over, and it, it was so beyond my league. I was way in over my head. I was so scared, but I was in show business. And um, they made me do this jump over this log uh, as a rehearsal, and I almost fell off the horse and killed myself. And so my father, who was on the set, and the social direct, the social uh, uh, worker who has to be on the set when there's children for this very reason said, oh no, this isn't safe. 
this is dangerous. You can't do this. And I'm thinking, oh, thank God I'm going to get out of this. But no, they huddled together, and then they came over to me, and they said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to tie you down to the horse with a rope so that when you jump over the horse, uh, over, the, over, the, over, over the log, you won't, fall, you won't fall on the ground. They were right. All I did was just wobble like a, like a, like a, a rag doll. I had to do this thing like three, four times, right? It was terrible. Uh, but hey, I was in show business. Okay. But it wasn't over. I had to do five more days of other scenes to, to get through just 45 seconds of this on this, uh, that I was on the screen. But of course, my, you couldn't tell it was me because they put me in black makeup, brown makeup, so I would look like an African guy. And um, where we shot this was a place outside of L.A., about 40 miles north in Saugus, outside of Saugus, called Africa, USA, where they used to film shows like Doctari and things like that, mm. where they needed African backdrops and, and things. And um, So they paid me extra to put on uh, literally blackface, you know, and, and body makeup. I had to put body makeup on me uh, so that I would look uh, not look like a white Jewish boy from L.A. Wow. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. And so another, the epilogue is Chuck Connors was a very sweet man, and he was there, and he liked to, for the, just as a hobby, he would take these home movies in this 16-millimeter camera. And uh, anyways, a couple of weeks after I was done, he was on Johnny Carson to promote the show. And so, you know, it was so exciting my parents let me stay up to watch it, you know, because he's going to talk about the show. Not, I didn't think anything in particular about me, but sure enough, Johnny says, hey, I hear you take home movies, and you've been taking some on the set, and you have some that you want to show. And so sure enough, he, of all of the scenes he picks, he picks my scene of jumping over the the log and him running over, you know, running out in the African desert. and y Yankee, It's just like, it was unbelievable. It's like, here I am on Johnny Carson. I mean, nobody knew because you couldn't tell it was me. But. Wow. So <laughs> what, what happened as far as your, your education and, and your path after grade school? Well, what happened was is um, also, if, it's kind of interesting you should ask that because it, it kind of, that whole thing fit, the answer to that fits into how um, my show business career started to dwindle. Because um, right after, when, as I was in junior high school, when I was turning 13, my parents separated and divorced. And my father was the main guy. He was the main thrust behind my career, my, my, my mother. And uh, I didn't realize that it, all this was happening at the time, but I guess I was kind of, I went into my own little funk and depression and kind of dropped out, and I didn't really care about anything, and um, I, I didn't care about my show business career. But one day, my, and, you know, my father wasn't really proactive in it anymore either. And so 
I hadn't heard from my agent for several, many months. And then uh, my mother got a call one day from another agent who said he'd seen my picture and that he would like to uh, send me out to Walt Disney Studios to interview for the starring role in a Disney film called Rascal. And it was about, it's basically Lassie, but with a raccoon, you know? <laughs> the, the, right, yeah. And so they needed, the, they needed the little boy to play against the, you know, and, but I would be the star of a Walt Disney film, right? So uh, this agent said to my mother, you know, in order for me to send him out to the Disney audition, you're going to have to sign me over as your agent and let the other one go. So, he, you know, she and I discussed it. and I said, yeah, we got to do this because, you know, this is incredible. I could be the star of a Walt Disney movie. My life will change forever and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and you're legally allowed to, to fire an agent in Hollywood if, if, he ha if they haven't gotten your work for over four months, at least in those mm -hmm. days. So that's what we did. So I went out on the audition and uh, to read for the, this part. And out in the waiting room were other ki other guy kids, just a few of us, my age. But one of them was the star. His name was Billy Mooney, and he was the star of a a, a very highly rated TV show at the time called Lost in Space. Yeah, and, I remember that. You know, he was a famous kid. Sure. And uh, I'm sitting there looking at him, and I'm going, I'm not going to get this part. I mean, <laughs> look, at, look at who this is. Look at who's here, you know. And uh, sure, sure enough, he got the part. I didn't. And uh, I never heard from the agent again. And, and my mother never said, let's get you back. And I never said, let's get me back. And I, it just kind of waned from there, and I lost interest. And, and uh, I eventually found interest in wanting to produce and, and uh, you know, kind of uh, be, be more creative within the field of the entertainment field, you know. Uh, but about that same time, I around age twenty, I was I was coming into my spirituality. I'd been I'd discovered, you know, done some things that opened me up more to spiritual outlook and consciousness growth and so forth. And I began to um, want to produce things that had some sort of conscious raising ability, not just a bunch of silly entertainment, you know. Right. And so that's, that's what began to shape my mission and my career, uh, you know, was to produce things that bring people together, to uplift the spirit, to inspire, to educate, and to entertain. You know, I think a lot of listeners don't know what producing really means. What is, what is being a producer? Well, that's a very uh, broad question because it just depends on... Uh, what type of producer you're looking for, uh, or what you're speaking of in, in the world of, um, of movies and television, it's quite different. Uh, the producers of movies are the people who put the things together. They put, they put the teams together. They, they bring the money together. Those, those are more like the executive producers right. of, of, of films. And, and the main person of a film is the director. It's, it's like his artwork. It's, it's his 
it's his ma- it's his um, what do you call it the uh, canvas. Yes. In in feature film, it's the director's canvas, but in television, it's not like that. In television, the producers are the kind of the creative ones, and they hire a director, and the the, the producers in television tend to be, have the ownership, and they're kind of running the ball game. And the director is simply a hired hand in television. Mm-hmm. The producers have a lot more power in, in, in television. You know, it's it's their game. But then again, they everybody has to work with the, within the studio system. So then you switch to the kind of producer that I have become, which is a producer of shows and events, and so. I am somebody who brings people together to do live shows and events. I do conferences. I, I can produce. In other words, I organize. I coordinate. I bring the teams together. Often, what makes a good producer is their ability to assemble a great team around them mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and not hold it all so close to the, to the chest. You know, for instance, even Steven Spielberg, who's an amazing director and has the vision, it's his team of hundreds of people that help put all of that together. But what does he have? He has the ability to put that team together. Yeah. You know? So did you begin to get gigs that way? I began to, um, because of my spiritual growth, I, I began to be into studying teachers um, who I wanted to hear more from, uh, and I would, I you know started organizing workshops in L.A. Uh, with 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 teachers who were um, in those days more of in the spiritual realm of the Deepak Chopra, uh, Ram Dass, you know those people in those days. Even Wayne Dyer, I go back pretty far with. Um, you know, some of the ones that were beginning to come out of what was called the New Age Circuit. And um, I was organizing events and seminars for them, and I found that I was good at it. And I basically then started to kind of unknowingly take on what became a motto for me. And that motto is, I only want to produce shows and events that I myself would want to go to, and I only want to work with people that I don't mind having dinner with. And that's where I, I, I try and adhere to that as much as possible within my career. Because when I've strayed from that and done things just for money with people that I do not resonate with, it doesn't work for me. Yeah, yeah. So you played an important part in a historic event, the likes of which really probably may never be equaled again. So how did you become part of the leadership team for the Epic Live Aid concert in Philadelphia? Well, it's a perfect transition, Dan, because uh, what we've been talking about is um, the spiritual element that I was involved in led me to do a something in the 70s that was pretty popular called the EST training, Werner Earhart and the EST training. Uh-huh. 
and that was all about, you know, kind of looking at your patterns and some of your stuff that you carry, to, you carry into relationships with people uh, that keep you and get you into trouble and getting you free from some of those patterns and, you know, getting you set, getting you to see, take responsibility for your own experience for everything instead of laying any trips on anyone. And so that program really opened me up and um, I continue to do graduate programs with, with the EST organization and that eventually led to my getting involved with an offshoot of S, which was called the Hunger Project. The Hunger Project was something that was founded uh, in the 70s by John Denver, Werner Earhart, a woman named Joan Holmes, and a couple of other people. And what they set out to do was something very unique that had never been done before with any organization talking about hunger. And they said, we are going to set a goal of ending world hunger. We're going to set what's called the context for ending world hunger by the year 2000. We're not going to be an organization that feeds people. There's other organizations that do that, like CARE. Yes. And, and UNICEF and, and Meals for Millions and things like that. And um, so um, we came along and said, we're going to create an organization that simply creates a platform with which people can show up. All these organizations can be part of our organization. Care, UNICEF, Meals for Millions. And they, because we're about ending hunger, setting a, setting a, a, a new framework for what's possible. Right. Um, and that led me into getting involved with producing events because I was good at it about ending world hunger. And that became the predecessor for the biggest event in uh, the biggest global concert of all time called Live Aid in 1985. So basically, uh, having done the S training led me to get involved very deeply with the Hunger Project. And the Hunger Project brought together a group of people in Los Angeles for something called the Los Angeles World Hunger Event, which brought together people within the Hollywood community of EST and the Hunger Project, people like Jeff Bridges, Valerie Harper, Cloris Leachman, many others who were kind of big movie stars and TV stars in those days, who had all kind of done EST and were going on talk shows and talking about it. But... Um, they were also involved in the Los Angeles World Hunger Event in 1980, which brought together uh, about 200 movers and shakers from uh, all walks of life, celebrities, uh, influencers, writers, producers, directors, teachers, politicians, some very well-known people, um, into a room to discuss creating, you know, what would it take to really end world hunger. And um, basically, because we were a group of people in the entertainment business, the way this day went is we educated people about the myths of hunger, like, for instance, that there's not enough food to go around, or there's too many people to feed. Those are all myths. And we would bust those myths, but we did them in a very entertaining way. 
and we never during the whole day appealed to people's sense of guilt. We never showed a picture of a starving child. And that was not the goal. The goal was to, to um, um, inspire those influencers in that room to go out and make ending world hunger a, an, a major issue in the world. Because in those days, the big issue was no nukes. Nobody was talking about ending world hunger, really. Yes. And so we, they said, you know, go out and do your TV shows or write shows, write movies and include this in your subject lines, you know, and to get it out there and into the, into the public. During that event, uh, an old comedian who used to be on Laughing named Art Metrano, he got up and he said, I think we should do an end hunger telethon and a rock concert. And, you know, that was kind of the seed. And that was in 1980. Uh, and then what you're alluding to is Live Aid. And so that leads to Live Aid. And what happened in 1984 was a group of famous rock stars in England, Paul McCartney, George Michael, Elton John, etc. They got together in London with Bob Geldof after he'd seen what was going on in Ethiopia. And they recorded just before Christmas, they released a song in 1984, in December, called um, "Don't uh, Let Them Know It's Christmas Time." Oh, feed, it's called "Feed the World." Sorry, and the, basically the, the the chorus is "Feed the world, let them know it's Christmas time. Feed the world, let them know it's Christmas time." With all of these rock stars, British rock stars, singing together in the studio this song. And that was released right before Christmas of 1984. Then people like Bob Geldof got together with some other people like Harry Belafonte, etc. And they decided we need to do sort of an American version of that. And that is what birthed We Are the World. And because Ken Cragen was involved and he managed... Lionel Richie, he managed Kenny, Logan, uh, Kenny Rogers, he managed Harry Belafonte, and he also managed, at the time who was alive, Harry Chapin. Do you remember Harry Chapin, Dan? Very well. Yeah, so Harry was such a cool dude, and um, got to meet him at this event, the LA World Hunger event. But what most people don't remember is that Harry was the very first en entertainer, as far as I know, who was out there back in the 70s devoting 200 concerts a year to ending world hunger. He was the only major star, he, and he wasn't a huge star. He was a well-known recording artist um, who was talking about it. But all of these things converged, and Ken Cragen... Um, arranged for Michael Jackson and Lionel Richie to collaborate on this song called We Are the World. And they, they chose the night of the American Music Awards uh, in Los Angeles that brought together all of, the, all of these stars, all of these music legends that were going to be in L.A. all at the same time. And they were invited over by Quincy Jones to A&M Studios on La Brea after that show, to do an all-night um, recording um, session, which ended up being We Are the World. 
which we all know. Yes. And then once that, once that was released and it became a sensation, the next obvious step was, let's do a rock concert. And that's what became Live Aid. And um, uh, because I think because of Geldof's British connection, somehow it was determined that we would do a, uh, a, a global broadcast and that it would emanate both from the stage in London and a stage in the United States somewhere. And that we would switch back and forth. And that's what, what ended up happening is 20 minutes ended up in Wembley, in London, Wembley Stadium. And then we would do 20 minutes in Philadelphia, at JFK Stadium in Philadelphia. And, uh, and then in between, we did education bits, vignettes of, how, of the, 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 the facts around ending world hunger, destroying the myths, just like we had done five years prior at that live event in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. We were still educating people and not showing pictures of starving children. It was not to raise money for that. It, it, was, it was to raise awareness, although it was all about the famine in Ethiopia. It raised $125 million for the famine in Ethiopia. And to, at that time, that was unheard of. Yes. Also at that time, was, that was precedent-setting, was this was the first ever global broadcast that brought the entire world together, all live at the same time. Because the only thing that had ever happened prior to that, in any sort of a global sense, was the Olympics and the World Cup. Well, the World Cup was never something that America was much interested in right. until the last couple of decades. Uh, and, and the Olympics were always being shown in time delays in various time zones. So this was the first time that the world came together live and to watch something simultaneously together all around the world at once for 17 hours it went on. 17 full hours. And it was the first time that technology had been used where we had, like, I think 15 or 16 satellites that had to be, uh, at, you know, utilized in order to make this all happen technically in those days. And it was quite, quite, quite a feat. Yeah, actually, uh, you know, I, I remember reading about it and, and what I'd heard was that even some of the, I guess the BBC took the lead on getting the uh, the, the thing started. And then ABC, I guess, Geldof actually kind of deceived ABC and told them CBS or one of the other networks was coming in because ABC wasn't wild about MTV being on it with them. Well, yeah, we ha it was very, it's interesting you should say that. A lot of people had to kind of work together who didn't really want to work together anymore because <laughs> there were actually and ended up being five different feeds. Um, CBS was not one of them. Uh, it, it did. ABC was the last feed. They did the primetime special in to America, but then there was like a world feed. There was an MTV feed, and there was a syndicated feed. Um, so it was quite quite something. But you're right. Um, there was quite a bit of competition, uh, and it all came together so quickly, Dan. Normally, oh. show business things, these projects take months and years to work all these deals out and get everybody happy. And 
but this came together in literally 10 weeks. And uh, I was literally only hired for five weeks at that time. But um, it took some time for it to get off the ground. And um, in, in the end, ABC was the, the main... Uh, they, they broadcast the last two hours. That's what they had exclusivity to, for, which was uh -huh. the, prime, the prime time, the end of the whole show. And uh, I have some very funny stories, because ABC's producer and, and star was Dick Clark. Dick Clark Productions was the producing company hired by ABC to come out to Philadelphia and, and do the broadcast. And, of course, a Dick Clark was the on-camera personality, and so it was his show. Um, so I got to hang out with Dick Clark, and if uh, there's a great story. Uh, the, the irony of my Dick Clark story is when I was four, five, three, four, five years old, I used to watch American Bandstand every day. Sure, yeah. And again, I was a kid. I didn't play cars and trucks too much, and I wasn't into cartoons, but I was into real shows, you know, like I Love Lucy and Dick Van Dyke and, and uh, you know, and Dick Clark's American Bandstand was something I seemed to really like when I was like five, three, four, five years old, right? And so it, it, apparently my everyday ritual would be to like get dressed up and I would play what I called it office, but I was really playing producer and I would get in front of the TV. We only had the one TV in those days in the living room and I'd sit down and the living, the, the uh, coffee table in front of the couch would become my office desk. And I'd have a little toy phone and I'd have some pencils and some paper. And I'd pretend I was playing office to the TV. And I, I now see what I was doing as well as I was playing producer. Right? I wanted to be part of the show business world. You know, I, I, I could already feel it. And so that was when I was age five years old. 25 years later, at age 30, in 1985, in Philadelphia, um, I was staying at the Four Seasons Hotel, which, you know, we were treated like, I was treated like a king. I was the, I was the main producer um, at, on the Philadelphia location up until just a few days before Live Aid, when every, all the other producers came out. Basically, it was... It was uh, in terms of what my role was, I was I was the guy there on 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 the spot, and so I had the Four Seasons Hotel and an all expense paid account, and the city was rolling over backwards to give us whatever we wanted, and um, until until all the other producers came out, and so Dick Clark came out to the Four Seasons just a few days before with his team as well. Uh, in those days, the only thing we had for video was those VCR machines. Right. And I happened to have the one and only VCR machine in my room at the Four Seasons that was available at the hotel. Dick Clark arrives, and two days before um, Live Aid, I get a call in my room. It's 1.30 in the morning, and I'm in my room. I was still up, and it's Dick Clark's producer, Gene Weed, and he says, Dick and I we hear you have a VCR in your room. I said, yeah. He says, well, we need to come down. We just got this videotape in fresh, and we have to watch it before we air it. It's a tape of Mick Jagger and David Bowie doing Dancing in the Streets. 
And the reason they had to go into the studio very quickly and do this video is because they were originally, the plan was David Bowie was going to be in London, Mick was going to be in Philadelphia, and they were going to sing together in a duet. But they tried it technologically, and it, it was in those days the split second delay. Yeah. Pull it off. So they decided at the last second to go into the studio and do this video together, right? Called Dancing in the Streets. It's, it's a famous video. People can YouTube it. Uh, it's the green, green version because it, it didn't get edited real well, and it kind of has a green hue to it. So, anyways, Dick Clark. And his producer end up coming down to my room at two o'clock in the morning at the Four Seasons Hotel, and now they're sitting on my bed, and we're watching TV together, and we're watching uh, the first time anybody in the world has ever seen this video. And there I was sitting with Dick Clark in my room watching this. It was oh, that's great. Pretty pretty wild. As I understand it, on on June tenth, when Geldof announced the concert lineup for the July 13th concert. Many of the acts he announced had not even committed. In fact, as I understand it, Queen hadn't even been contacted yet. I mean, yeah. it sounds like chaos. It, 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 it was, was, it was, it was, Dan. It's interesting because you mentioned CBS and we really had a problem with CBS, as I recall. Um, as is usual with these types of things, um, it takes one major artist to say the first yes. Yes, yeah, yeah. And then they all come on board. I don't recall who the first one was, but I do recall that CBS called one day and they threatened. They, we had Stevie Wonder, who was their act, and... They said, if you don't put more of our black artists on the bill, we're pulling everybody, including Stevie. They were literally playing hardball with us, right? Because they didn't think we had enough black people on the bill or something, right? Or they wanted more of their artists, you know. And that's just not the way this, this whole thing was coming together. It wasn't... People really had to leave their egos at the door. And, uh, you know, and most people did that. And... The ones that didn't really blatantly showed their their true colors. So uh, you know that was one of the reasons I think that the ABC ended up getting the the uh, the gig to do the um, primetime special because uh, CBS was really dicking us around. I guess six six weeks out the the TV deals really hadn't yet been finalized, had they? No, that's what I'm saying. It had all come together so quickly. So the first five weeks, kind of, they were meandering along, trying to pull things together. Uh, I was hired then in week number five and was quickly sent off to Philadelphia to set the whole operation up, up in Philadelphia. But, um, you know, and all the other writers and producers stayed behind in L.A. and, and, and did their, their parts. Uh but it took, like, one of the artists, you know, I think it might have been Paul McCartney or somebody who was one of the first people to say yes. And uh, It was Dire Straits. It might have been. You, you've done, you know, some research on this. I'm learning some things <laughs> myself. I didn't know those dates, those milestone dates. It's, it's fascinating. I love it. So, it is. 
I'm learning myself. Uh, but yeah, we just had the, by the time when I hit the ground in Philadelphia, it was five weeks to July 13th. And um, now the reason it was in Philadelphia and not New York is an interesting part of the story too, is because about four months before Live Aid, there was a mayor in Philadelphia named Mayor Good. Yes. And um, he decided he wanted to rid the city of crack and crack houses. And so he thought it'd be a good idea to blow a couple of crack houses up. And in, in the process of doing so, he ended up taking out four city blocks. And um, it was a terrible tragedy. And of course, a very a severe overreaction uh, and it made the national and international news. Yes. And as a result, Philadelphia needed to do some damage control and PR control, right? To get back in the good graces of the world and be a good city and a worthy city to come and spend your tourist dollars. So they saw an opportunity to give us everything. So they gave us the stadium, which was an old rundown stadium that they weren't using anyways. Um, and they gave us, you know, they made, help us make deals with the hotels and everything. And the hotels gave us great deals. And we, there were so many people that at a certain point that it became like, this is the hippest thing in town. This is the biggest event of all time. Everybody wanted to be involved. Entertainment tonight was on this, on the scene every night. And it was, you know, the live aid is happening. And, um, and, uh, so it became like people wanted to, to donate. So AT&T donated all the 800 lines for the people to call in. Um, and most of the hotels either donated the rooms or gave us very, you know, low rack rates. You know, I don't, the, the whole budget for Live Aid, I believe, was over $20 million. In the end, uh, we ended only spending actually about $3 million, if I have that correct. I, wow. I, I may be a little off on that, but that's what I recall. So that's how much was given to us. Um, there were other competitions happening, and they had to happen quickly. I remember one day in the Live Aid office, literally, I was on the phone with Pepsi-Cola, and at the same time or thereabouts, within minutes or, you know, uh, half an hour, I was on the phone with Coca-Cola, and... They have to decide which one of them is going to be the main signage sponsor, where it says Coca-Cola on the stage, or it says Pepsi-Cola on the stage, for all the world to see, right? And again, corporations don't make decisions in days or hours. They make decisions in months and years yes. Yes. about their advertising budgets. Meetings and memos <laughs> are, are taken, you know. So, no, they had to make this decision. So, literally, I was saying to them, it doesn't matter to us. One of you is going to get it, and it's going to be the one who makes, who makes the commitment first. And they said, but we have to have a few more meetings. And I said, well, then you might miss your opportunity, because then the other one's going to get in. And it was pretty fun, kind of playing Coke off of Pepsi. <laughs> but wait, there's more. It gets more fun. So, and in the end, Pepsi got the deal, all right? So they're the signage sponsor. They're the ones that get the big sign on stage, and every time we come back from a break on TV, you know, it's going to be proudly sponsored by Pepsi, blah, blah, blah. 
All right, nobody thought anything of it until we went to the stadium in Philadelphia, um, which, if people know the game in, on the East Coast, it's pretty Teamster, Mafia, you know, kind of controlled, like what happens when things happen and who gets to do what in certain venues and sport, sporting arenas and things like that. Everything is contracted. And so we go to the stadium. They say, you know, we, we got Pepsi Cola as our, our sponsor. And they said, okay, fine, but we don't serve Pepsi here. We serve Coca-Cola. And we're, we got a problem on our hands because it's like, wait a minute. We can't have the whole world see the stadium filled with people drinking Coca-Cola <laughs> if Pepsi is the sponsor. And it's like they were not going to break. They said... You, this stadium serves Coca-Cola, and that's all we're ever going to serve. So somebody came up with an idea. God bless him. I don't remember who. I don't think it was me. It could have been me. But it was like, well, do you care what kind of cups we serve them in? And we were thinking, you know, we'll just get them neutral cups or whatever, you know. But in the end, they go, nah, we don't care. You, you give us whatever cup you want, but we're pouring Coca-Cola into that cup, not Pepsi. <laughs> okay, okay. So sure enough, that day at Live Aid, everybody is out in the stadium. We got them Pepsi-Cola cups, and they're all out there in the stadium drinking Coca-Cola from Pepsi-Cola cups. <laughs> oh, that's funny. That is funny. So, did you did you have much connection with Bill Graham? More than I would have preferred, actually. Yeah, I hear that he and Geldof both were kind of legendary for their bad humor and ill temper. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Geldof was a rock star. You know, he, I didn't have any run-ins with him. Uh, he was just, you know, he would come to the meetings, see what was going on. You know, he was running everywhere, doing everything. But Bill Graham was the guy with me in Philadelphia. Bill Graham, of course, was the rock and roll, uh, uh, you know, Barnum and what is he, what's the word? You know, he's the empresario. Empresario, is that the right word? Yeah. That is. Yeah. And he was a master. He And so he, not only was he a master, but he had also, this was 1985. Well, by 1985, he had created and made this made some of these people who they were like Santana, the Rolling Stones, Jefferson Airplane. He's the one who featured them all in the United States, you know, brought yeah. them here and so forth. So they were very indebted to Bill Graham. And he was, he was very good, of course, at what he did, but he had a dark side. He was very charismatic. He was also Jew, a Jew, a Jewish guy who was also, his family was also a survivor of the Holocaust. And, um, but he was very charismatic, and the, the, the talent would do anything for him. And so, literally, my boss, Mike Mitchell, who was the executive producer of Live Aid, executive producer, meaning he put, he put all the other producers, he brought the team of producers together, and he brought the money together and everything. He is the executive who oversaw all the producers. When, when Mike hired me, he was very smart. He said, he said uh, he knew he didn't know much about television. He didn't know much about rock and roll. He didn't know much, anything about any world hunger, but I knew a little about all that. You know, so he needed somebody like me. 
and who could be on the ground and be his. He literally said, I want you to be my eyes and ears on the ground. Mike, you, uh, you, uh, Mike Mitchell was the number two guy with Peter Uberoth in the 1984 Olympics in L.A. Uh, yeah. He was the operations manager. So he was, he was a very, he had done a really good job with the L.A. Olympics. And um, so he was hired to executive produce Live Aid. So he brought me on. So Geldof was there, but, but Bill Graham was literally hired by Mike Mitchell to be the talent coordinator. He wasn't the big overall producer of the event or the show. He was literally the talent coordinator. But Bill Graham thought he was in charge of everything. And um, he had a very uh, uh, volatile, ruthless side that could all of a sudden break out into very uh, nasty uh, conversation and threats, literally. I'm going to, you know, he would literally threaten people physically, want to fight with them, literally. Wow. Well, the fact that he wasn't the big overall producer and he was just in charge of bringing all the talent together, all the rock stars, had our organization and his organization, Bill Graham Presents, butting heads a lot. And uh, that ended up being very problematic, especially the 17 hours during the actual event where Bill Graham Presents was um, in charge of the security for the show. And they decided that they could literally mess with us, uh, us people on, on the production side of things, who literally, we had credentials and we needed to get backstage, but Bill Graham was in charge of the security force. So at any moment he could say, now it's the only people who can get backstage are the ones who have this, this credential, this tag. And then all of a sudden, all of us couldn't get backstage and do our job. Well, it got so bad that our attorney had to call his attorney and I mean, he threatened him. This was all during Live Aid. It was uh, pretty insane. I, I heard a story that they were looking at the possibility of not only of telling Graham to get lost, but to have him arrested for trespass. That's very accurate. I was remember standing there with the lawyer on our side. Uh, I remember what he looked like. I just forgot his name, but... Um, yeah, he was like on the phone, man, you know, and like trying to deal with this. And at one point, I, I'm back on the stage and I, I'm somehow standing next to Bill Graham and he comes right up to me. He gets right into my face, points his finger. He says, Fred, if you don't get the f off this stage, I'm going to punch your f***ing face in. Wow. And it was like, hey, man, sorry, buddy. I got a right to be here. Too bad. You're going to have to live with it. I got to do my job, too. So... I That's happened about three weeks out. Graham was actually trying to discourage some of the talent from joining the uh, the program. I hadn't heard that, but I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, it was. It got to be really nasty. Yeah. Matter of fact, I understand. You know, one of the one of the acts that uh, that they had in uh, about two weeks out, Huey Lewis and the News dropped out, and what uh, Huey, Huey Lewis apparently was making statements to the effect that he didn't know how the money from We Are the World got spent, which was kind of casting aspersions on whether it was actually spent well or, you know. And Huey was definitely Bill Graham's guy from San Francisco. Yeah, and then I understand that started a whole big deal between 
USA for Africa, which is the We Are the World group and the Live Aid group. Does that affect you at all? No, because that was all the financial stuff. Uh, I was an on-the-grounds producer and uh, having a blast living, living the good life at the Four Seasons Hotel on uh, all-expense-paid account. <laughs> and I was a big, big shot around town, you know. I had limousines and everything, you know. It was great. It was great. Every morning I'd get up and I'd jog up to the, the Rocky Stairs in Philadelphia. Ba -ba 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 ba 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 you know, and I'd... Because <laughs> the oh, Four Seasons is like a mile down the road. But as I understand it, things... That, well, why don't I ask you this? What was your situation? How would you describe your situation three weeks out as far as being ready? Um, things were... Uh, once, once the momentum shifted and people started coming on and everybody wanted to be a part of it, it got to be really fun. You know, at first it was like, are we going to be able to pull this off? And people are... CBS is threatening to pull Stevie Wonder in their acts and, and the Bill Graham thing, you know, and all of that. And, but at a certain point, um, maybe not the three-week mark, because it all happened so fast. You know, I remember our first meeting out at the stadium with Bill Graham and the whole team, and it was real, and it, people were really excited. Uh, and... Everybody was doing their piece. You know, I didn't have to worry about any of the technical stuff. There was the satellite people. They were handling all that, you know. And then everybody had their field of expertise. Uh, you know, we had the talent coordinators. We had the hotel coordinators. You know, can you imagine what a big job it is to, to house all of the stars and all other yeah. people? And w one thing that was nice was that the stars didn't bring their entourages. And remember... This is the first one. You know, now they've done all kinds of concerts and global concerts and charity concerts. Everybody has their own foundation now, right, that they do stuff for. And nobody had that in those days. Nobody was affiliated with any nonprofit foundation. So yeah, yeah. everybody was very willing to give, give of this. The whole, the whole world was into it. And um, basically, there were only two major rock stars at the time that did not participate in Live Aid that I can remember. And that was Michael Jackson and Bruce Springsteen. Now, Bruce, he had an excuse because he was on his honeymoon with his first wife. And uh, so we knew he wasn't going to come. However, i got another great story about Bruce Springsteen. If people are old enough to remember a Saturday Night Live player called Joe Piscopo. Yes. So Joe, was he was on SNL. In the 80s, he would play Sinatra, and um, he was great mimic, you know. Uh, and he also did Bruce Springsteen, but he hadn't really done it on SNL yet at that point. Well, one day, I get a call in the office, and it's from Joe Piscopo. And he says, I hear you're doing Live Aid, and I understand Bruce isn't going to be able to make it. And I said, yeah, it looks that way. And he said, well, I'd like to offer myself to come and do my Bruce Springsteen instead. <laughs> so I, in my mind, I, I knew right away this is never going to happen. <laughs> but 
I love this idea personally, and I love Joe Piscopo. And I said, well, this is a great idea, Joe, but since nobody's ever seen it performed, I'm going to have to come take a look and see how you do. He goes, yeah, yeah, come on up to Atlantic City this weekend. I'm going to perform. Bring a, bring a girl up with you. I'll, I'll put you up in beautiful suite, take good care of you, and you can come see me do the show, and you'll see it and see if I can do it. And I said, okay, fine. So off I went, you know, Mr. VIP. I grabbed an old flame in New York who had, from L.A. who moved out to New York to work on the stock market, and we off we went to Atlantic City, put up in a beautiful suite, ringside table with the Chateau Briand, you know, the, the wonderful champagne, you know, and uh, watching him do the show. Uh, all the while knowing they're not going to let him do this at <laughs> Live Aid, but it's, it's great. So I kind of milked it, and it was really super fun. But Joe Piscopo, I have a good, nice picture. He was there that day. He was supporting all of us. I think he went on and, 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 and introduced an actor. A lot of the celebrities that were there came on just to introduce acts. I guess Nicholson started the whole show, didn't he? Nicholson was the first one out, yeah. And I have some great pictures of Jack just before he went on at 6.30 in the morning. So at 7 o'clock when the show started, oh, Jack was out there and he went like this onto the microphone. And he said, hello, world. Hello, world. And that was the, that was the beginning of Live Aid. Oh, that's great. It was. As I understand, when you get down to the, when you're getting down to the wire, three days out, I I heard that it was still pretty much pandemonium. Matter of fact, I heard I heard something about that Graham was on some sort of a rampage, and that some people were afraid that the Philadelphia concert was in in danger of unraveling. So it sounds like that's a different story than your experience. Well, um, you know. Again, I had my job to do, and I wasn't privy to everything, but I do remember there was all that drama, and one of the guys I remember was Larry Magid, and or yeah. Magid. Larry was, was the Bill Graham of Philadelphia. He was the guy. He was the main promoter and producer all those years. He's, he was the one pre presenting all of these guys. And somehow, him and Bill got into a whole sniffle about something, because I'm telling you, the egos were, were there. All these big shot players who were used to being the kings of their castle, you know, all these chiefs, right? Yeah. And and literally, I was Bill Graham's chief. Theoretically, he was working under me for for my boss, and I was supposed to watch, kind of manage Bill, you know, in theory. But it, it certainly didn't work out that way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's funny because you know you only remember the good stuff and. And you are helping me recall a lot of that drama that I, I hadn't recalled as much. I did, of course, remember Bill Graham uh, threatening to, to, to punch me in the face. And then also something that was very sad that day that nobody really know, knows about was that Peter, Paul, and Mary were there all day. No. And they never got on to perform. And um, uh, in my, the finale, even if, oh, I think maybe in the finale they might have gotten on. Uh huh. I don't know that for sure, but probably, yeah. Yeah. Um. But here's Peter, Paul, and Mary. Bob Dylan is there. I mean, what an amazing opportunity to put them together to sing one of the songs that Peter, Paul, and Mary like "Blown in the Wind" or something, right?
Yeah. And Bill Graham, because he was trying to put a deal together with the Rolling Stones to, to, to bring them on a tour, he decided that the finale should be Bob Dylan with Ron Wood and Keith Richards. All three very f***ed up by this point and out of tune and they're singing the three worst voices you could possibly pull together to sing Blown in the Wind as the yeah. final song before We Are the World. And here's Peter, Paul, and Mary, you know, 50 feet away backstage who could have come out and, you know, can you imagine? It's wow. one of the huge disappointments that um, I, I personally carry about it. But well, Actually, in the end, I mean, the magnitude of, we're talking just the Philadelphia concert, and then there's Wembley Stadium going on, but in, in Philly alone, 39 acts performed in Philadelphia. And I mean, when you talk about egos, you know, show that magnitude with 39 different acts going on, that sounds like a total logistical and ego nightmare. Well, the way we worked it out logistically was maybe the first of its kind of a rotating stage. So we had two halves of a stage. And so we, we would be setting up for one of the bands in the back while another band was out performing. You see what I mean? It was like a, 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 circle, a circular stage that rotated, yeah. and only one half of it was out in front at a time. That's how we pulled it off. And then, of course, we also had that 20 minutes uh, while the other show was going on. So Wembley took 20 minutes, and we took 20 minutes, and then in between... We did the vignettes with the educational pieces about ending hunger. Yeah. And, you know, some of the fundraising. I understand they made a makeshift hard rock cafe backstage. They actually built a... Oh, yeah, that's a great story. I'm glad you brought that up, too. Um, there again, I was directly involved. Um, I was invited to come up to New York to meet with the owners of the hard rock cafe. So I did that. And... It was great, you know, got treated like a king. And they were pitching me to do what they ended up eventually doing, which is they wanted to to build a, a mini hard rock cafe at Live Aid in Philadelphia. And um, which they ended up doing. You know, they spent like a quarter of a million dollars to put this thing in. And it was just for the VIPs and... Um, you know, it wasn't not 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 the whole stadium could get in, but if you had a certain ticket and all the celebrities could get in, of course. Um, I don't think well, the celebrities had their own thing backstage. It was obviously there were so many of them; they were all hanging out together, enjoying each other. And one of the one of the times I, I remember it was funny. Madonna had just hit the scene in 1985 with like a virgin. Yeah, for yeah. the very first time. And then what happened after she became a star, Playboy um, published some old nude photos of her. And she got real pissed off, you know, that some, some, young, some guy that she did nude photos with when she was 17 in New York, you know, sold those photos and they published them. And so she comes out onto the stage at Live Aid and it's literally 95 degrees and about 95% humidity, literally, in Philadelphia that day. It was horrible. And she's wearing a, a full-length mink stole. <laughs> during, she was on during the day. 
and and her first words were, "I ain't taking shit off today." <laughs> but she was she she was dating Sean Penn at the time, so she arrives at Live Aid backstage totally secure, and she she and Sean arrive, and she immediately says, "I want I need the bathroom." Completely clear, so Sean and I can go go into the bathroom together. It's like it's already a secured area, you know. We don't need to make the bathroom secure, but she insisted, so she could go in there with Sean together. So that happened, and then when when right before she went on, her people came up and told us all backstage: when Madonna's walking up on stage, don't look at her, make no eye contact. I mean, you know, this was her just just the beginning. You know, that was her beginnings. So I tell that story because in contrast to the way almost everybody else was, they were so nice, all of the rock stars, Mick Jagger, um, everybody. Joan Baez, I remember her coming up to the office, to Live Aid, and asking us, is, is there anything she could do to help? You know? Joan yeah. Baez, she's a big star in those days. Something. Um, People were really sweet. The only ones that gave us a tough time were like Madonna and, and Brian Wilson from the Beach Boys insisted that um, he have his whole team of doctors and psychiatrists with him. Mm -hmm. So he was kind of doing the prima donna thing. But everyone else, nobody asked for, for rock star stuff. Well, that backstage area had to be huge. It was huge, yeah. Yeah, it was huge. Yeah, it took up the whole, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it was a big, big uh, uh, field. Yeah, yeah. And it was a football field. And so, but yeah, I mean, there's trucks everywhere and television trucks everywhere. And, and uh, you know, in those days, even though, of course, everybody had to be secure, it wasn't like they felt would feel today. Like, well, sure, this wasn't that long after Lennon had been killed. No, it's only oh, five years, but still, everybody knew they weren't. It, it wasn't on their mind that somebody could come out of the out of the blue at the concert and shoot people, you know. Because Lennon was a, a guy who was obsessed with John Lennon, who came, it was was a lone nut that killed him, you know. And uh, nowadays, we've had shootings at rock rock concerts, and and you know the Las Vegas shooting. And uh, Ariana Grande, and you know, on there's more, I think. Yeah. So, if you had to choose the peak moment in your experience at Live Aid, what would it be? Well, uh, you mean a peak moment for the show, or peak moment for no, me personally? For you, what, what, what was, what was just one of the absolute highlights of the, the whole show for you? Well, I, I have to, I have had quite a few. I have to say, sitting in my hotel room with Dick Clark on my bed watching TV 25 years after I was sitting on my couch watching him <laughs> was kind of a personal milestone. I'll tell you one of the highlights was the night before Live Aid was the rehearsals. And not all, everybody was there for the rehearsal, but Mick Jagger and Tina Turner were there for their rehearsal. And that became a very famous moment of Live Aid which is when they were singing together their duet, and Mick pulled the skirt off. And that was choreographed. That wasn't like a, a shock like, like the Super Bowl with Janet Jackson. So they were working that out. And Hall & Oates was there on the stage, and 
I mean, it, it was all very exciting because we there was only like a hundred of us in the stadium. It wasn't there weren't there was no crowd yet, and it was the first time like we were plugged in the sound system. You know, we'd been watching the whole thing be built for a week, and then finally, everybody's there, and there's Mick Jagger, right, you know, standing twenty feet from me, with Tina Turner. And it was it was just exciting to uh, be a part of that intimacy, that very intimate moment of the yeah, re of that. Yeah. Now this is really happening, and it's happening tomorrow. It's going to be the biggest show that the world has ever seen. Don, I can't let you go without asking what the worst moment was. Well, the worst moment's easy. Um, <laughs> um, you know, at the at the end of Live Aid. You know, of course, uh, the big finale is um, We Are the World, where all the stars came out and we're all on the stage together singing, We are the world, we are the children, you know, and that was the grand finale. Right. And um, I was asked, they said, Fred, they want you out on stage. And I said, Are you sure? You know, because I was worried about Bill Graham. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, no, they want the producers out there. you got to get out there. Come on, it's good. It's all good. And I was like, oh, man, I'm going to get hell for this. I know I'm going to get hell for this. But all right, I'm going out. And there I am, and I'm, I'm standing, uh, you know, I think next to Jeff Bridges and Cher and Lionel Richie's right in front of me. And, you know, and we're all like, you know, we are the world. And I'm first of all, it's a very exciting moment if you if, if, if you've watched Bohemian Rhapsody, the movie, that really did a fantastic job of capturing the enormity and the excitement of what it was like to be in the audience and to be out in TV land and also the excitement of what it's like to be on the stage in front of the enormity of that crowd. So I was on that stage in front of the enormity of that crowd. And so that was a rush. But while I'm singing and I'm swaying, we are the world, I'm thinking, wow, my dad is seeing me now. Wow, this is great. Finally, my dad. What do you think of me now, dad? Huh? Some kind of loser now, right? And then I'm thinking, wow, I'm going to hear from a lot of people out of my past who are watching me and seeing me, and they're going to go, wow, Fred, we saw you on Live Aid, man. That's amazing. And, and then I also thought at the same time that... Later on at the rap party, which, by the way, I was the producer for the Live Aid rap party, um, I'm going to get hell from the other people in the truck in the, in, you know, who are watching all this and going, why is that asshole Fred up there? It's always supposed to be the star. <laughs> so anyways, the, the, the show ends, and I've got to rush back to the hotel and produce the rap party at the hotel. And I'm prepared for people to come up and really give me a hard time. Like, what the hell are you doing up there? Who do you think you are? Nobody said anything. And I'm, I'm like, this is really strange. And I was like, okay. And I just forgot about it. And then I thought, oh, I'm going to go up to my hotel room, and probably tonight or the next morning, the phone's going to be ringing off the hook with people from all over from my past who recognize me, right? That didn't happen. Again, I just kind of forgot about it. Well, a couple of weeks later, I'm back home, and a bunch of us got together, and we're finally watching some of the video footage from Live Aid. And I'm seeing what the world saw, and finally gets to the end of the show, 
and we're doing we are the world we are the children and what the director did with all the cameras he didn't pan the stage he did very tight shots of all the celebrities he uh, went from one celebrity yeah. to the other and so if you if you if you freeze frame it at one particular point you can make it out that that that's my face at one spot right otherwise it's just boom 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 on all the celebrities and so it was a major ego buster for me because nobody ever said a damn thing to me i had to say there i am stop it that's me really i'm there oh no <laughs> and it, also another ego buster was i thought shit i just i just was one of the producers of live aid i mean i'm gonna be hot to trot back in hollywood i'm they're going to want me. I'm, my career is made. I'm 30 years old. I'm ready to rock and roll. I better get back home quick because we didn't have cell phones in those days. I better get home quick because the phone must be ringing off the hook. And I'm still waiting for that phone to ring. I'll be. Yeah, I was going to ask you, man, you know, gee, you've just been part of the greatest concert in rock and roll history. Now what? Right. Now so what, what? What did you do? Um interesting i kind of uh i was in a kind of um a state of limbo for about a year and the woman i was involved with we decided to sell everything and do a lost in america we, we bought a a, a, a motorhome a small a van and we just drove up the coast of california across canada down the east coast six months on the road we just kind of got uh -huh. out because uh, i wasn't sure i wasn't sure what was next for me quite honest, uh, you know, and it took, took some years before I realized that the way I needed to do my form of entertainment was to get out of L.A. and produce shows and events, like I said, that I myself want to see and, and uh, uh, that are of a more altruistic nature. I ended up leaving L.A. and moving to Aspen and producing for John Denver. Uh, his Windstar Symposium, which was all about sustainable futures. Mm -hmm. So I've maintained that as my mission all these years, and and now I live in Maui. Uh, I've been in Hawaii now for twenty years, and I produce shows and events here, and I I tour authors and lecturers and teachers that are all you know the 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 the, the teachers that are opening people's hearts that are now part of the mainstream like Deepak Chopra and. Uh, Eckhart Tolle and Wayne Dyer and these people, Byron Katie and Marianne Williamson, all those people I've prom promoted and produced in, sh in events here. Yeah, I was thinking, boy, after that big event, I, it almost, I had a vision that you were going to go through almost like a postpartum depression. I think now looking back, I did, Dan. I dropped out. I wasn't sure what I was going to do uh, because my career didn't take off and the phone didn't ring off the hook like I might have anticipated so yeah yeah that didn't happen but um i've managed to uh do my thing here you know when i came to hawaii i didn't come with an agenda of i'm going to do global media productions which is the name of my company in hawaii i, I came and i said i'm going to see how does maui want to use fred spaniard what is what do they want to do with me how can i best serve and then it kind of unfolded organically as I got involved with the environmental movement here and helped them produce events and raise money and do shows and things like that. Yeah. 
So you intend to carry on for a while, or you? I don't know how old you are now, but I'm about to turn sixty-six uh, on May twelfth, and I um, I'm not retired. I have a an amazing resume, uh, not a lot of assets, <laughs> so uh -huh. I still got to work. And gotcha. um, <laughs> well, that's an, an amazing story. Your life is just an incredible journey, Fred. This has really been a treat. To to hear from you and hear your stories. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity. It was a lot of fun. It went, it went very fast. Like, wow. Many among us measure success in monetary terms. Every conversation I'm fortunate to have with guests for our podcast reminds me that money doesn't bring either lasting satisfaction or happiness. Happiness and satisfaction are the true measures of success, and both are inextricably linked to what we contribute to life, not what we take for ourselves. Fred Spaniard has made contribution his personal mission statement and his business model. The lessons that informed his life's mission and work evolved and grew, sometimes forged in the midst of doubt and disappointment, sometimes by unimaginable accomplishment. The beauty of it all is that the experience is common to many who grace our lives every day, their stories unspoken, their contributions unsung. Unspoken Unsung was recorded in the Conversaire studio, Carlsbad, California. Additional recording and mixing was done at Brother Rock Projects, also in Carlsbad. Martin Danner and Ken Langen engineered the recording. Post-production engineer was Ken Langen. The show's host and producer is Dan Danner. Music was provided by Zapsplat. Listen and subscribe to Unspoken Unsung wherever you find your podcasts. And if you like it, please rate and review us. Join us again next month for the next episode of Unspoken Unsung. <laughs>